as we come out of that hymn, I teach the middle school Sunday school class, and all of you kids that are in my class now, you know some of the words that are in that song, Lord Sabaoth, his name. My kids know what that, that means now. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts is his name, Jehovah Sabaoth. Always good to know what you're singing. So now you know, middle schoolers, uh, what Martin Luther meant there in that hymn. If you do have a Bible with you, why don't you open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19. Just open it up to both of those chapters. And if you want to get ahead a little bit, you could also open it up and put your finger in Psalm 59. We've read from Psalm 59 a couple of times already in this service, and we're going to be looking at that again today. But 1 Samuel 18 and 19, and then also Psalm 59. Again, we're not going to take the time to read through both of these chapters so again, it will give yourself a little heads up to come to the service each week having read ahead what we're going to be preaching on for that week. And as uh, I've said, we are continuing this series in the book of 1 Samuel today. We're continuing because we started it last year around this time. We'll finish it in the next couple of months here, and uh, if you're so inclined, you could certainly go back on our website and listen to or watch the sermons from 1 Samuel from last year there to catch up. If you're new to Riverview, we tend to jump around the Bible throughout the year from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the reason we do this is to hopefully show that the Bible tells one singular story and has one singular message. Sometimes people think the Old Testament and the New Testament can seem kind of disconnected or disjointed, but they aren't at all. This whole book is one book, one message from God, and it's all pointing us in one direction, and that is towards Jesus. So that's what we're going to be doing here this morning and in these coming weeks, is seeing how the book of 1 Samuel points us to Jesus. And as we do that, I have a little confession, or I guess it's not so much a confession, but just something about me. I love preaching from the Old Testament. I think it's my favorite genre to, to preach from is this Old Testament narrative because we see the power and the glory and the authority and the sovereignty of God so clearly in the lives of the people that he interacts with. And that is certainly what we see in these chapters here today. Let me kind of bring you up to speed as to where we are in the story of 1 Samuel. If you recall way back in the beginning of the book, Israel told God that they wanted a king. They wanted a human king to rule over them, which was against God's wishes. God said, you don't need a human king. I am your king. But they persisted, so God allowed them to have a king, and God chose Saul to show them what they were exchanging by having a human king instead of him as their king. And things started out good with Saul, but they kind of went downhill pretty quickly. And we left off last year with David slaying the giant Goliath. That was our last chapter that we studied, chapter 17 in 1 Samuel. And so then as a result of this victory of David over Goliath, David begins to rise in the eyes of the people of Israel as a promising up-and-comer. If you look at verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18, it says that they were coming home from that time when David slew Goliath. And it says, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands 
and David his ten thousands. David had become popular with the people. It's like we have a job approval rating for presidents in our society, right? David's job approval rating with the public is off the charts, and Saul's is going down and down and down. Now, as you can imagine, that kind of thing doesn't sit well with the king. So look at verse 8 of 1 Samuel 18. It says that Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So a bit of tension begins to creep in between Saul and David. But it goes even further than that. If you skip down to verse 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Now, in order to understand just how afraid Saul is of David, we actually need to go back a few chapters because this isn't the first time we see this. Back to chapter 13. If you have your Bible open, just keep your finger in 1 Samuel 18 and flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 13. You see, it's not just that Saul is losing a popularity contest with David. It's not that David is more fit to be leader than Saul. Instead, it's that God has departed from Saul and has placed his favor on David, and Saul knows it. This is what we read back in 1 Samuel 13, verse 13. Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought, a man, or sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince of his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So you see, when all this business with David is going down, those words that were told to Saul by Samuel are ringing in his ears. God is going to raise up someone else to replace you, Saul. And so Saul knows in his heart that this David who killed Goliath and is becoming more and more popular with the people that's the man. That's the man that God has chosen to replace him. And it scares Saul to death. So what should a man in Saul's place do? Well, he could repent. He could admit his selfishness, his greed, his jealousy, his lust for power. And he could turn from those things and turn back to God. Or he could try to fight against God. Guess what Saul chooses? Yeah, not the right thing. And here's the tragedy of Saul's decision. God's mind is made up. His will has been established. His plans and purposes are unfolding in the world. There's no changing them. And try as he might, Saul cannot undo what God has done. He can't change God's mind. God has declared that the kingdom would leave Saul and be given to a man after his own heart. That is going to happen. There's no stopping it. But Saul is still going to try, even though it's hopeless, even though he can't win. 
Have you ever used the phrase that something has begun to snowball? You know what that means when something starts and it just can't stop and it gets, keeps gaining pace and getting bigger and bigger? Like a snowball, it starts to roll down a snowy hill and it rolls, it picks up more snow, it gets bigger, it rolls faster and so on. God's will to deliver the kingdom from Saul to David has begun to snowball. And you can't undo what God has done. But Saul is going to give it his best try. And that's what the rest of these two chapters are about. about. Saul trying to undo what God has done and the absolute futility of doing so. Let me just show you, take you through these chapters and show you what Saul did to try to undo what God had done. First, he tried to murder David. Twice, actually. For a time, David had become close with King Saul to the point that he was in the palace or the the, uh, in Saul's court playing music or something. And so Saul takes advantage of David's familiarity and comfort of, in, of being in his presence as an opportunity to end him. This is back in 1 Samuel 18, verse 10. It says, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So Saul tries to undo what God has done with his own hand through cold-blooded murder, but that is not God's plan. So, surprise, surprise, it doesn't work. Next, Saul dangles a carrot in front of David's face and sends him out on suicide missions. This is verse 17 of chapter 18. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the the hand of the Philistines be against him. So Saul offered David his wife as long as he agreed to go and fight the Philistines nonstop, in which Saul assumed that David would be killed in battle. And maybe he thought, I lose a daughter to him in marriage, but the Philistines will kill him, and I get to keep the kingdom. But this kind of backfires in Saul's face because David actually pushes back against that plan, saying that he is much too insignificant to be a son-in-law to the king. And so Saul's daughter is married off to someone else. But Saul has more than one daughter, and another of his daughters, a woman named Michael, is actually interested in David. So Saul comes up with another plan. This is verse 21. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And then skip down to verse 25. It says that Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he, he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So Another daughter is promised to David. This time, the cost is 100 Philistine foreskins, and Saul thinks that this will surely be the end of David. No way can he bring me back my price, which, as a side note, if I may say, is a silly thing to ask for for a present. But David goes out to battle, and much to Saul's chagrin, he doesn't die. Instead, he comes back with double the price that Saul requests. So Saul gives him his daughter in marriage, and this does nothing but enrage Saul all the more. Look at verse 28. 
But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Now, do you remember that snowball of God's plan to take the kingdom from Saul and give it to David? It just keeps rolling down that hill. Look at verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Now, you would think that Saul would begin to get a clue that this train ain't going to stop. God will have his way, and there is nothing that Saul can do to change that. The wise thing, the only thing for Saul to do would be to get on board God's train. But he doesn't. Instead, he continues to try to undo what God had done, next by uh, hiring out hitmen to go and get David for him. So this is verse, uh, sorry, chapter 19 now. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says that Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. So now it's not, not just Saul that's after David, but he's expanded the, the circle of hitmen or assassins to include his family members and his servants. I imagine wanted posters up with David's mug on them, armed and extremely dangerous, kill on sight, wanted dead or alive, but preferably dead. It doesn't say so, but I'm sure there would have been a handsome reward if someone were able to deliver David's corpse to Saul. And so while that's going on, Saul tries to murder David with his own hand again. Again in chapter 19, Saul's son Jonathan, who is also David's friend, talks to his dad to see just what it is that he has against David, and he reminds Saul of everything David had done for his kingdom by killing Goliath and fighting the Philistines and so on. And this is verse 6 of chapter 19. It says that Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So Jonathan goes back to David and he says, okay, it's all water under the bridge. My dad is cool with you now. You can come back. So David comes back and he serves Saul in the royal palace and in the court of the king again. But now look again at verse 9. It says, A harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Oh, so much for that oath that Saul swore, but as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. It was all just a ruse to draw David in and to give him a false sense of security so that Saul could once again try to kill him. And Saul even uses his own son as a pawn by lying to him to draw David in. But of course, Saul's plan didn't work because you can't undo what God has done. That snowball is rolling down the hill. But Saul still doesn't get the clue. Instead, he hires some assassins to do the dirty work. Saul sends some men to David's house to go and kill him. But Saul's daughter, Michael, who is also David's wife, warns him about the assassins and he escapes. So that by the time Saul gets there to do the deed, all they find in David's bed is a bunch of pillows under his blanket with some fake hair poking out of the top like a cartoon. Uh, so once again, that didn't work. It, seriously, you should read through chapter 19. That's what 
They do. They stuff some pillows under the blankets, put some fake hair at the top to make it look like he's sleeping, but David has escaped. Now, the interesting thing about this attempt on David's life is that David himself reflected on it, and we have his words recorded in the Bible. This is where, if you have your Bible open to Psalm 59, Psalm 59 is David's reflection on this episode, when he was in his house and Saul sent men to kill him. If you look at Psalm 59, at the very top, it says, to the choir master, according to, do not destroy, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So Psalm 59 is David's reflection on what it's like to have someone trying to kill you because they're angry at God. And I want you to notice what David says God thinks about Saul's plan to undo what God has done by killing David. This is verse 8 of Psalm 59. David says, But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. My God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Listen, do you know what God does when people try to counteract his will? When people try to go against his sovereign plan and purpose? Do you know what God does when people try to undo what he has done? He laughs. As he's writing this psalm, David looks out the window and he sees Saul's men down on the street outside his house and he says, God laughs at them because those men have their own plans. Those men have their own ideas, but those plans and ideas are nothing in comparison to the purposes of God, to the will of God. Proverbs 16, 9 says that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You see, God had a plan for David and for Saul. Saul didn't like that plan, though, so he came up with his own plan that was contrary to God's will. But God laughs at the plans of man. God laughs in the face of those who seek to write their own destiny. God laughs in the face of those who presume themselves to be the captain of their soul and the master of their fate. God laughs in the face of Saul. In the book of James, it says that those who go about and say, tomorrow we'll go and do this and that and thus and such, God opposes those people. And for those who would seek to undo what God has done, they will soon discover that it can't be done. Saul would go to his grave not having discovered this truth. But here's the wonderful contrast as David reflects on this truth and he finds comfort in that. He says that God is his strength, his fortress. The fortress of God's will will not allow David to be harmed because God always gets his way. God's will is a fortress, a mighty fortress is our God and his will. His purposes are established in the earth and no other purpose will ever trump that or supersede that. God's will is primary and absolute and nobody, not even kings, can undo what God has done. Read the rest of Psalm 59 on your own time and remember that God's will prevails but apparently Saul needs another lesson because we're not done with these chapters in uh, 18 and 19. So David runs away from his house after he writes this psalm about God, the fortress of God's will. He runs away from his house and he goes to Samuel, the prophet. 
at a place called Ramah. And word reaches Saul that David is with Samuel at Ramah, and so Saul sends his assassins to Ramah. But when they get to Ramah, all they find is Samuel and these other prophets. They're prophesying, and the assassins themselves are overtaken by the Spirit of God, and they start prophesying too. And so Saul finds out about that, and he says, well, those guys fail. I'm going to send it some more. So Saul sends some more assassins. Guess what happens when they get there? They get overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, and they start prophesying. So Saul sends a third group of assassins, but they start prophesying. And so finally, Saul figures, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. So Saul himself goes to Ramah to get David, but when he gets there, guess what happens? (laughs) The Spirit of God comes upon Saul, and Saul begins to prophesy to the extent that Saul is taken out of commission for a whole day and becomes utterly unconcerned with the whereabouts of David. Now, it might sound odd to us that the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he prophesied along with Samuel. What's that all about? I thought Saul was at war with God and he was trying to subvert his will. Well, indeed he was. So for that reason, perhaps we shouldn't presume that this was the same kind of prophesying that the righteous prophets like Samuel were doing. Instead, I think it's more likely that what was happening was that God was giving David a chance to escape. So the spirit came upon Paul, uh, Saul and his assassins to turn them into a mass of useless jello so that David had time to escape. But the point is, Saul went there to kill David and he left empty-handed because you can't undo what God has done. And so that's where we're going to leave it for this week. We'll pick up next week in chapter 20. And again, the point of these chapters is, I think, that God has a plan and purpose that he is carrying out in the world. And you can either get on board with it, or you can go along for the ride unwillingly. But either way, one way or another, you're going to get on that train of God's will. And it will be much easier for you if you get on board willingly. Let me give you just a couple more examples from the Bible of this very same principle. We see this all throughout Scripture. Because we go from King Saul in the Old Testament to another kind of Saul, or another man named Saul in the New Testament. You probably know him better as Paul. But before he became Paul, he was Saul. And one day, Saul was on the road, and he met Jesus in the flesh. And this is what he says about that encounter in Acts chapter 26, verse 14. It says, When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that's a strange expression. Kick against the goads. What does that mean? Do you know what a goad is? A goad is like an ancient cattle prod. It was like a sharp stick that livestock farmers would use to move their livestock along. You had to encourage the animals to go where you wanted them to go, and the way to do that was to give them a little poke in their rear end with a sharp stick. But the animals didn't always want to go that direction, so what they do? They kick back against the goad. But that wasn't very productive because kicking back against the goad meant you got a sharp stick to the leg. And here's the point. No matter how much the animal kicked back against the goads, the farmer would continue to poke them in the rump to get them to move. And guess who won that battle of wills? Never the animal. The farmer always got his way. The animals went where the farmer wanted them to go. And they could either go willingly 
or go with the persuasion of getting poked with the goad. The choice was there, theirs. And what does Jesus tell Saul? He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, Jesus was saying to Saul that he had been resisting the will of God up to this point in his life, and it has led to a lot of difficulty. Saul was trying to undo what God had done through Jesus by persecuting Christians. But God wasn't going to allow that anymore. God was going to put a stop to it, and he could do it the easy way or the hard way. Saul, it's a lot easier to follow where God is leading willfully rather than being drug along here and there. But I think for Saul, that's what he needed. He was the kind of person who needed to be poked with the goad before he got the message. King Saul was that kind of person too, except the tragic thing is that he never got the message. Are you maybe that kind of person that needs to be poked with the goad in order to get the message? Don't be. You don't have to be. Get on the train of God's will and go for the ride. You know who else learned a lesson like that, that you can't undo what God had done? Pharaoh. Pharaoh held the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, and God had willed to release his people from bondage. So he sent Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let the people go. Moses did, and Pharaoh said, nope. And Moses said, look, you really should because you're going to do it eventually anyway, but it's going to get pretty unpleasant if you don't do it now. And Pharaoh still refused, so God sent plagues. Ten of them, each one worse than the one before it, until they culminated in the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh finally said, enough, go, get out of here. So the Israelites left, but Pharaoh changed his mind. He went after them. But Pharaoh, you can't undo what God has done. God willed that his people would be released, and even if you want them back, it's not going to happen. So Pharaoh chased the Israelites down, and his whole army drowned in the Red Sea. Do you see the grief that Pharaoh could have avoided if he would only acknowledge God's authority and sovereignty and gotten on board with his will? Or have you ever heard of Jonah, another very famous Bible story? God willed that Jonah should go to the city of Nineveh and preach repentance to the Ninevites. And Jonah said, I'm not doing that. And he took off in the other direction. And God said, no, you are going to do it. And he had Jonah thrown off a boat in the middle of the ocean in the middle of a storm. He had him swallowed by a great fish and then vomited back up on land. And guess where Jonah ended up? Right in Nineveh doing exactly what God willed him to do. Jonah can't undo what God had done. Do you think it would have been easier for Jonah to have just gone to Nineveh the first time than rather than to have to go through all of that other stuff? You see, folks, God knows what he's doing. He has a good plan and purpose, and he calls us to join him in that plan by living out his will in our lives. And if we fight against that will, we're just injuring ourselves because we're not going to win. We're not going to change God's plan to look more like our own. That's what Saul was doing. I don't like God's plan. I like my plan, so I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make my plan come about. But that's not going to work. That's what Pharaoh did too. That's what Jonah did. It's what Paul did. And guess what? None of them got their way. Do you think you're going to get your way? 
But what these guys did get was quite a few bumps and bruises along the way doing exactly what God wanted them to do. And so the call for you and I from 1 Samuel 18 and 19 is to surrender our wills to God's. Don't fight against him. Don't try to have things your own way. Instead, do what Jesus did. Take up your cross and follow him. That is God's will for you. Are you maybe trying to undo something that God has done? It's especially a relevant question, I think, as we stare down the barrel of a brand new year. Can I encourage you to kill your pride, to humble yourself, and to trust God's will for your life? Trust me, it's good. It's good. God has a good will, a good plan for you. Maybe you can't see it right now, but there are plenty of things that you can't see. So trust him. And what you can know for sure is that God's will for you is good, even if it's hard sometimes. And if you are a bit bumped and bruised in life, is it maybe because you're kicking against the goads? Because you're resisting God's will? Well, but Joel, how do I know God's will for my life? How do I even know if I'm fighting against it? God has given you his will through his word. He tells you his will. He tells you what he wants. He tells you his plan for you right here. And so if you want to live according to his will, live according to his word. This is why you need to be in your Bible. This is why if you haven't joined us yet on this Bible reading adventure we're going through this year, you should know the word and you will know God's will and you can live out God's will for your life. This is why you should join one of our community groups. Maybe you can make that a New Year's resolution. Join a community group and be a part of a group here at Riverview. Study the Bible with other people. Discover God's will for you. And then don't resist it. Live it out. Get on board with what God is doing in your life. But there's one more person in the Bible who has tried to undo what God has done. And that person is Satan. Satan has spent all of history trying to undo the will of God. Not that he ever could undo what Jesus did on the cross, but he is definitely trying to get you to think that it could be undone. You see, Satan is trying to get you to believe that God can undo his will in your life, that Satan can undo God's will in his life. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, it says that Satan stands before God and that he's accusing Christians of sin. And he is good at accusing us of sin. He's good at bringing up bad memories to mind. He's good at making us think we're unforgivable or making us think we're unlovable. He's good at accusing us of all sorts of things. And what he's doing by those accusations is he's trying to get you to think that what God has done in you can be undone. But it can't. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good good work in you will see it through to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That song that we sang earlier this morning, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. That comes from right from this verse. Listen, 
No one can undo what God has done. Not even Satan, not kings, not rulers or authority, spiritual or physical. No one can undo what God has done in you. So when the devil comes to try to tempt you to think and accuses you that you're unlovable or unforgivable, you need to tell him that. No one can undo what God has done. And so what God has done in the hearts and lives of those who belong to him cannot be undone, not by Satan or anyone else. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, because we are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't undo what God has done. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank you that you are Lord. And Lord, that your word is final, that your will is final in our lives. Father, we admit and we confess that sometimes we are slow to acknowledge this. Lord, sometimes we are too quick to press our own will, our own desires, and try to have our way rather than submitting to yours. Lord, show us the futility of our own ways. Show us how much like Saul we are, King Saul, that we would seek to force our agenda on you. But Lord, show us and remind us that your plan, your will, is what is best and what is good for us. And Lord, give us the humility of spirit to submit ourselves to your plan for us. God, help us as we go into this new year full of all sorts of uncertainty and maybe doubts and fears. Lord, help us to trust in your will for our lives. And Lord, may we not go kicking and screaming the way may we gladly and eagerly get on board with what you are doing in our lives and also in this world. Lord, you have a worldwide plan that you are working out. Help us to be involved. Help us to submit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.